Hey, I'm Mel. And I'm Andres, and you're listening to Mixtape, your favorite Afro-Latin podcast. What she said. Today's track title is inspired by the song Afro-Cuba by Compay Segundo. Congo está libre, Congo se liberó, Congo mata mayora, Congo suena su tambo. Congo está libre, Congo se liberó, Congo mata mayora, Congo suena su tambo. Yo mambe. Yo. Today we're listening to Ya yo maté mayoral by Rumbata. Rumbata is an Afro-Cuban rumba group founded in 1996 in Camagüey, Cuba, by Wilmer Ferran Jiménez. In a documentary, Wilmer comments how difficult it was to get the project started in Camagüey since the city was not traditionally a rumba city. In their Facebook page, Rumbata writes about their approach, I quote, The bata drums highlight the Yoruba influence in coexistence with the Congo and Abakwa footprints. What defines this approach is a strong holy rhythm, very rich, dynamic and creative as well as the remarkable improvisational skills of our singers and percussionists. In Yayo Mate Mayoral, Rumbata displays the polyrhythmic approach, starting with a palo rhythm and transitioning then into a rumba columbia. The song talks about the perils of an enslaved Congo black man in Cuba and how he frees himself by killing his overseer. Rumbata sings, Congo está libre, Congo se liberó, Congo mata mayoral, Congo suena su tambor. Congo is free, Congo freed himself, Congo killed his overseer, Congo plays his drum. Congo here refers to a black man, member of the Congo ethnic group. If you're curious, check our sources for this episode where we list the song and a documentary about Rumbata. Welcome to the second episode of our second season, Afro-Cuba. This is Mixtape. Welcome to the Mixtape Podcast. If you are joining us for the first time, you are tuned into our rhythm season. Yes, in this season we are exploring different Afro-Latin and African rhythms we encounter while social dancing. In one episode, we discuss a rhythm, and in the subsequent episode, we feature a where you're listening song with the associated rhythm. Yep, we discuss the history of the rhythm as well as the movement associated with it, and discuss how we can continue to center and recognize its black roots. Last month, we did this with samba, which was a ton of fun, and if you made it past the first 30 seconds of this episode, I think you can guess what we're talking about. Afro-Cuban Rhythms. We had the privilege of speaking with four brilliant instructors, choreographers, and business owners that have helped to deepen our understanding of the dance, the rhythm, and the culture. To shine a light on Afro-Cuban rhythms, we spoke to Marisol Blanco, who contextualized the rhythms and the culture. Now, because she and another of our guests were only available at the exact same time, we had to split labor. And I was commissioned to speak with Marisol. The decision had nothing to do with my Spanish. <laughs> wink, wink. 
Marisol is the owner and director of SICAN Afro-Cuban Dance Project. She is a graduate of the Superior Institute of the Arts in Havana, Cuba. Marisol's been a Cuban folklore and popular dancer, teacher, and choreographer for over 20 years. She has graciously been providing free Afro-Cuban dance online classes throughout the pandemic via the Cubex Center's Instagram account. These classes are on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern time, in case you want to check them out. I for sure am there every single week. They are awesome. We are thankful for the time she spent with us to dig into these rhythms. Before diving into Andres' conversation with Marisol, let's talk some history. As a consequence of the transatlantic slave trade, which began in the 16th century, millions of Africans were kidnapped and sold to be exploited. Enslaved Africans were deliberately scattered throughout many areas in the Americas, including the Caribbean, in order to dissolve familial, cultural, linguistic, and spiritual connections. Enslaved Africans had been brought to Cuba as early as 1513 to replace the dwindling indigenous servant labor population. However, the influx of enslaved Africans in 1807 in response to the increased global demand for sugar dramatically changed the island. In the rush to sell as many enslaved labor as possible, Large numbers of people from the same areas in Africa were enslaved and sold together in groups. By bringing enslaved Africans to Cuba, enslavers might have intended to obtain cheap labor. The real impacts were much bigger though. While enslaved Africans worked in the fields and Cuba's export economy increased, long-lasting changes were happening. During this horrific time, Cuba's ethnic identity, culture, and spirituality developed. Enslaved Africans in Cuba managed to maintain a great deal of their native culture, linguistics, and spiritual practices. The consequences of these cultural changes lasted far after the abolition of slavery in 1886. You can see the consequences of these changes in the Cuba of today. In my conversation with Marisol, she shared about important historical events following the abolition of slavery that contributed to Afro-Cuban dance. Bueno, mira, eh, lo que ayudó a que la danza folclórica tomara términos académicos. What helped folkloric dance take academic and professional levels was the creation of art school. This changed the fortune of folkloric dance, giving it an entirely higher connotation. Folkloric dance did not have this connotation previously because it was not possible to practice it. Government officials didn't allow it. Hence, the practice had to be done in secret. And this was true not just for dance folklorists. People had to practice their folklore in hidden ways. That is why syncretism arose. Back then, black people said, Okay, for me to be able to practice, to be allowed to practice, I have to believe in your God, I have to take oaths under your command, and I do them so that I can keep my traditions. This was a very wise idea that black people had because that syncretism was what helped to preserve what little we had left. It was necessary 
to be able to hold community celebrations, and to be able to get together. Otherwise, government officials would come and the police would take drums, instruments, everything. After the triumph of the revolution, there was a time for all that to be accepted. The culture and the arts were revolutionized within the country through institutionalization. It was now possible to redirect everything. They had to renovate to cover those cultural gaps in order to keep the people focused. And then there's tourism. Tourists were coming to Cuba specifically to learn the folklore. Being an island favored us because we did not have other neighboring countries that would interfere with our belief system and religiosity. What got there stayed, like a jewel box. Marisol talked about the main Cuban religions and how they stay alive. The three most popular religions are La Regla de Palomonte, La Regla de la Osha, also known as Santeria, and La Regla de Abacua, which is the Ñañeguismo. Other belief systems, like the Arara and Ganga, were smaller. What facilitated the expansion of the Bantu's Palomonte rule, the Yoruba Osha rule, and the Abakwa rule, is that they accepted people who came from outside their own ethnic groups. That is what helped them to become known worldwide. Not only Creole and Black people were accepted, there were white people who began to be part of all of these traditions. Let's share a little more about these religions for added context. La Regla de Ocha, also known as Santeria, is a practice originating from the Yoruba people of southwestern Nigeria and Benin in West Africa. Like many religions, La Regla de Ocha has a single central god, Olorun. It has similarities to Catholicism in which people can pray to saints who act as intermediaries between humans and God. Assisting Olorun in communicating with human practitioners is a pantheon of deities called Orishas. Exploiting these similarities, they were able to celebrate, pray, and hold festivities for their deities by using the associated Catholic saints' names and depictions. La Regla de Palomonte, another practice, is associated with the Bantu peoples from the Congo area. It is mostly passed down through oral tradition. Power is not centralized. Rather, its structure is determined by religious families called houses. These houses are formed around a ritual leader, man or woman, the initiator, who is a sort of second father or mother to its members. On a cosmological level, one of Palomonte's prominent features is that the spirits of the dead mediate and organize human action and rituals. Abakwa is a practice that encompasses many elements, including language, music, dance, and religion, to name a few. 
Abaqua famously includes secret societies. Donald Brooks truly writes in his 2009 dissertation that it is not precisely a religion, it is a religious organization, but is better understood as a ritual brotherhood, sometimes compared in structure to the Freemasons. For those who listen to the podcast, what is the connection between the three different religions and the dance? Bueno, mira, la conexión es identidad. Esa es la primera conexión que nosotros tenemos. So, yo, mediante la danza... The connection is identity. That is the first connection. Through dance, I teach a folkloric fact. I teach a tradition. I teach a culture. I am a communicator, an educator. What I teach through dance are my traditions, those of my Cuban people. I facilitate a connection of body, mind, senses, and spirit. I do this because very often, the reason why we do not know ourselves is because we do not know our background. In Afro-Cuban dance, we work a lot with the internal force, with the center of our body. And this helps you make roots, to ground yourself, to go deeper into yourself, to start awakening your senses. Often, when people feel the connection to the drum or to the beat of something traditional and folkloric for the first time, you see that their eyes water, they cry. That's because they're hungry, hungry for their past. They have not connected with their ancestors. In that sense, I do not teach religion. Religious practice I do with my spiritual siblings. What I give my students is orientation, an identity. I teach them to learn, to value the culture where I come from, and to learn to value the wealth of Black culture. Because Black people have given so much to this world. So much. For people who are interested in learning Afro-Cuban music and dance, out of the many rhythms that exist in Afro-Cuban folklore, what rhythms do you think they should start with? As we were talking about the three most popular ethnic groups, they're not only the most popular, but also the most complex in dance and musical richness. I would recommend to learn all of them, Yoruba, Congo, and Abakwa because each one works different techniques. But if you are pursuing a solid base, I would recommend you learn the Orisha dances from the Yoruba ethnic group and the Conga dances from the Bantu ethnic group, because they are rich in strength, independence of each part of the body, coordination, rhythm, body language, and gestures. In addition, you're going to find them again when you start learning the family of rumba dances. The dances of the Yoruba origin, also known as the Orisha dances, aren't only found with the batag drum rhythms. We can also find them in the guido rhythms, Iniesa or Yesa drum rhythms, and the Bembe rhythms. The dances dedicated to the Orishas are some of the richest in variety in terms of dance steps, rhythms, prayers, 
spatial designs, body movements, and gestures. They have great semiotic character because their characteristics, clothing and costumes, colors, languages, and chants, and dance steps are tightly linked to the story. We never move out of context. The dances of Congo origin are found in three musical and dance styles. The first one is palo. Palo itself has many properties. Its dancing is strong, defying, and ceremonial. All of its movements are directed towards the ground, maintaining firmness, stability, and great connection with the ground or the ancestors. The second style is Makuta. Makuta is an open partner dance that, despite its great richness in body movement, dance opulence, and rhythmic vibrancy, does not lose its sacred character. This is because its lyrics are dedicated to the spiritual deities and its positions in nature. It has a basic step, which is what I call Makuta Aguerrida, which is the sliding step. It also has the Makuta Sensual, which is one that entails circular pelvic movement or lateral hip movement. The third style is Yuka. This one is of profane character and contains traces of ancient fertility rituals which are origins of its sensual and erotic gestures. It's an open partner dance where pelvic crashes between partners are common, which is the main motivation of the dance. It's a dance where the dancers imitate poultry, domesticated birds, in this case the rooster, with its eagerness to mount the hen, which is an act of possession. It's a slow, lilting rhythm with a lot of cadence. In the United States, learning and practicing Afro-Cuban dances does not require initiation or religious practice, but respect and awareness of the origins of the dances is strongly encouraged. This is part of what Marisol discusses. For those who practice no religion, or for those who practice a religion different from any of the main Afro-Cuban religions, how would you recommend they approach these oftentimes sacred dances? You can believe in what you believe. You come to me because you need guidance. Most of the time, you want dance riches. But you cannot have dance wealth if you do not have spiritual wealth. The concept of how we work, the way we work, from percussion, from body placement, from technique, from the emphasis on relationship between your feet and the drum. Those are concepts that help you to go deeper, to have a foundation, to have strong roots for what you do. And I do that through dance, through the folkloric concept, through the relationship of the drum with the feet, and also through history. I don't let your body look and move empty 
I give it a foundation. Then, when you go out to dance, you dance like a hero, an animal. It has nothing to do with your religion because it is history. I teach you history and how you are going to interact with all those rhythms. History so that when you think, you can relate. If I say, we are going to move with the energy of the river, you will know that your body will move smoothly. That is not religion. I am using a thematic idea so that you can visualize it. Because we dancers, we have to visualize in order to materialize what we are doing. Lacking foundation results in you losing your confidence. That's why I give you a thematic idea. That's why I fill you with history. That's why I make you have a relationship with the drum, so that when you look at yourself in the mirror, all that confidence rises, so that there's no space for doubt or for insecurity. Because what I train is warriors. We are a brotherhood. I have always functioned like this, as a brotherhood, because the world needs, needs that strength, needs that security, needs that identity. Afro-Cuban folklore has an African component, but it also has a Cuban component. From your point of view, what makes Afro-Cuban both African and at the same time Cuban? Le decimos afrocubano porque nosotros somos descendientes de mamá África. We call it Afro-Cuban because we are descendants of Mama Africa. That's why it says Afro in reference to where it comes from. And Cuban is a reference to the nation where it is formed and where it took new guidelines. It's what happened with the Creole. Because who did blacks mix with? With people in their same class. Because remember, there were racial and class problems generated by the dominant race. So who did the blacks mix with? With the indigenous and with the Chinese immigrants who were part of the other big wave of cheap labor migration. And then, that's why you see blacks with Asian features and indigenous people with curly hair, like mine. The whites, the Europeans, didn't openly mix with blacks due to racial social norms and class norms, but they frequently raped black women. Even though many of these atrocities were not exposed, they existed. Otherwise, the world wouldn't have known the mulata. The mulata was living proof of the atrocities the whites did, taking advantage of their social position. Wherever black people went, they were segregated. Wherever. Do not think that they lived in Havana. The ones living in Havana were those who worked for the colonists. The rest were segregated towards the shores. That's where the black curro comes from, which was the segregated black person who lived in the manglar. (laughs) 
so my conversation with Marisol was about an hour long. Next week, we'll release a bonus track featuring the extended interview in Spanish on all platforms in case you want to hear from the very source. Look out for that. We also heard from three instructors, choreographers, and business owners about their experiences as students of Afro-Cuban rhythm and movement, how they fuse this movement into other areas of dance, and how they approach learning Afro-Cuban with humility. I met with Serena Spears, who is actually a pension actuarial consultant in addition to being a New York-based professional dancer. When I reached out, you mentioned you fell into studying Afro-Cuban dance and that you're still in the learning stages. I really appreciated your humility and I find in my experience that many students of Afro-Cuban folkloric dance like to emphasize that they're in the learning stages. What makes Afro-Cuban so sacred for you? So I, I think first I would separate Afro-Cuban dance into two categories. Uh, there's the secular dance like rumba and the religious dances of the Orisha, which is what I've been particularly drawn to. Um, so for me, even if it's not necessarily religious, uh, there is a deep spiritual aspect to it that feels like a connection to African sacred dance. Um, and it also connects me to different sides of my own personality based on the different Orisha. Um, I feel like I've been searching for that feeling for a really long time. Uh, dances that feel like many sides of myself as opposed to like performing a character. Um, and so it really makes me have an immense respect for that form. Uh, I think also, especially for women, that many religions and cultures have negative opinions about a strong feminine. Uh, and so it's really refreshing to see powerful, multifaceted female entities in dance. Uh, to be able to emulate them, to move like them, and to feel that kind of power within yourself as you're dancing. Uh, I think all of the Orisha, male and female, make me feel uh, powerful and beautiful in their own way. Um, and so, like, I, I just feel this awe when I see it, when I dance it, and I want to hold that up when I talk about it to other people. Oh man, this answer by Serena makes me wish I had been there to talk to her as well. The perils of split labor, I guess. But I don't know about you, Mel, this part really touched me because the first deep connection I felt with the drums was many, many years ago, back in Colombia, when I heard Cumbias Colombianas by Totola Momposina and the likes, and Son Palenquero by Sexeto Tabala. I felt compelled to dance. I felt part. I felt one with the drums. And I felt that same connection when I discovered Afro-Cuban dance and music. Tell us how you felt into Afro-Cuban dance. <laughs> so I started in salsa and a friend of mine introduced me to Seku McMiller, who does uh, Afro-Latin contemporary jazz. But while I started dancing with him, he was pulling in a lot of Orisha work. Um, but what he does is fusion. Um, and I feel like there's, there's a difference between learning fusion and learning the root form of a dance. Uh, and I think it's really important as fusion artists. There's nothing wrong with fusion to me. 
as long as you're doing it respectfully. But uh, as a fusion dancer, I think it's important to learn the proper roots so you know the rules before you start to bend them. Um, and so I, I was bending them and feeling bad about it. <laughs> so I looked for classes of the, the pure form so that I can learn the rules while someone else is telling me to bend them. <laughs> As salsa dancers, we thought it was necessary to ask some questions to our own instructors, James and Pewekovo, whose Afro-Cuban training is in part with our guest Marisol. James is the director and choreographer of the Triangle-based Cobo Brothers Dance Company, and Pewe is the co-director, choreographer, and principal dancer of the company. We were grateful to step off the dance floor for a bit and discuss how they engage with this rhythm. As a fusion dancer, how do you think of your role in responsibly incorporating Afro-Cuban movement into your dancing? I think first, um, any fusion dancers should acknowledge they're no expert in um, the genre they're fusing in. So to clarify that is really important for me. So in every single time I teach anything, I would make sure I tell my dancers, I am not teaching you Afro-Cuban. I am teaching you um, the fusion style that I have learned from my teachers. Um, and I kind of think of myself as a tour guide or a translator of this genre of dance, of guiding um, myself and my students to the right teachers and to say, um, because I'm no expert um, in the dance, but I will try my best to represent it the way that was accurately taught to me. Um, but if you do want to dive in to that specific genre of dance, you should go to the specific teacher, which in this case, my teacher is Marisol. Uh, also, um, I studied with Giselle Mora from New York, who's also an incredible Afro-Cuban instructor. He does live drumming, live singing. It's, it's, it's an absolutely magical um, experience. And I think another point is to really respect the culture um, and the dance itself. Because Afro-Cuban folklore has expanded more broadly to the general public, we wanted to know Marisol's opinion on whether there has been a divorce between the dancer and the rhythm as a consequence of the expansion that comes with commercialization. Marisol offered insights on the value and consequences of this phenomenon. It's like everything. This is a consumer society an Afro-Cuban folkloric dance became a commercialized item. For convenience, it was easier to teach using numbers than to teach with professional percussion, because for that, you need knowledge. When something is difficult, people stop doing it, because they want to learn it fast, right in the moment. In addition, as it becomes something social, something for enjoyment, people then stop learning Afro-Cuban dances when they feel frustrated. At that point, it loses commercial value and charm. 
I'm not going to sell you a product that is going to cost you work to learn because you're just going to say, oh, it takes too much work and I'm so busy and have so many bills. I do this for enjoyment, not to get frustrated. So the methods developed to be able to commercialize Afro-Cuban dance weren't deep. They weren't basic methods to give you a product that appears easy and pretty to look at. That is commerce. When you sell a product, you have to sell it in the most accessible way for everyone. When you go to the roots, you realize that there is a lot of essence. But everyone does not have the time, nor does everyone want to spend time on the essence, and they settle for the superficial. You also see people who take the class and say to you, oh, but folklore has nothing to do with salsa. You can't help but wonder, what are you talking about? Afro-Cuban dance and folklore has boomed through all the commercialization, not only of religiosity, but also the fundamentals, the richness in rhythms, dances, oral traditions, the philosophical and historical richness. Now, everyone has to face it. You can no longer segregate us. You can no longer hide Afro-Cuban folklore because the results are too obvious. You have no choice but to value it. Many of us have been contributing to this through different routes, through dance, religiosity, history, musicology, ethnography, anthropology, you can no longer avoid recognizing its value. Marketing Afro-Cuban folklore and putting it out to the world means that you will find many who do not give it the value it has, and they only market it because they know it's an easy way to make money. However, it has also given the possibility of being valued. I'm grateful that today we are valued because when I arrived here in the United States, they told me we didn't need it. The folkloric dancer, the folkloric culture, not only the Afro-Cuban, the Latin, the Caribbean, are loaded with meanings because they're telling or narrating the story of a nation, of a group, of a tribe, through their dance and through their music. Afro-Cuban dances, at least the explicit integration of orishas within salsa performances, for instance, has become popular over time. In your opinion, has the popularization of Afro-Cuban dance resulted in appropriation? Yes. <laughs> I, I, do, I do see... Um, the Afro-Cuban movement being used without respect or reference as appropriation. And it's interesting because it's a, it's a gray area that sometimes it's also minorities who are doing this, but they aren't necessarily black minorities, or they may be very light in color, uh, giving them the privilege to to use this movement out of context without suffering any sort of consequences. Um, and I think it just perhaps takes some more forethought before throwing these things in haphazardly.
Often, we hear that good, technical Latin dancers are those with ballet training. But this seems to suggest that Afro-Cuban is not technical. We wanted to hear our instructor's opinion about this assumption. The, the short answer is that all dances, all of them, have technique. They require technique um, in order to execute at the highest level. Uh, the highest level is determined relative to each dance and, and what it encompasses. Afro-Cuban is, is very technical. Um, I mean, I think I can, I just, I could train it for the rest of my life and I'll never be quite good at it. But it, it's, it's, its purpose is a cultural folkloric purpose. I have trouble saying that word. Meant to um, essentially express um, a symbolic uh, uh, religious um, uh, elements of people's lives. To be quite frank, any, almost any dance that you can think of, it requires not only a certain level of uh, technique, but it, it, the easier you make the dance look, usually the more technically advanced you are. And so uh, when, you, when I uh, look at some of the Afro-Cuban um, dances, especially some of the Orishas, or even Columbia, uh, uh, even uh, uh, Yambu, which is basically the slow, slowest form, to be quite honest, I had a hard time trying to not only uh, execute the technical parts, right? When I say technical, I mean the mechanical, physical parts. But then there's a cultural element. And in order to dance uh, any form of dance well, you have to actually absorb the culture of the dance. That's what makes it the dance, the essence. In other words, the look and feel of it is, is, is tied very much to the culture. And so that's why it's actually important to, to, to study Afro-Cuban elements, even if you're never going to master it, uh, such as in my case. But I enjoy the challenge and I'm just going to keep doing it until I can do it some justice. Yeah, so I do think um, Afro dance in general is incredibly technical, especially in the Orisha dances. It's really important for us as dancers to be a permanent student to really understand what goes into a dance. As dancers who are not Afro-Cuban, how do you build and maintain cultural humility with Afro-Cuban dances and rhythms? I think the more you learn, um, the more balanced you become, the better dancer you become. Right? And to be quite frank, the more I learn, the more I realize there's so much more I don't know. That if, if, if that, if that answers the question of humility, that's where I'm at right now. So one of the things that keeps me going is that I know, I train knowing that I will never reach that level of perfection that I want. And with that comes understanding, uh, both the technical, physical part of it, and to a very large extent, the cultural aspect of it, uh, which requires a, a bit of patience. <laughs> and I don't, I don't read a whole lot, but um, I, I think that listening to Marisol, that's where the humility is, is, is really understand, genuinely understanding that in order to truly become a part of a dance, you do have to understand uh, the cultural aspect of it. It doesn't have to mean you dive into it, but you do have to understanding. And then the more you do it, the more you realize there's just so much. 
How can consumers of Afro-Cuban movement honor the origins of the rhythm and the movements? So I think one of the main ways is by digging deeper than just learning the movement. Uh, learning the stories of the Odisha so that you're representing their personalities. Uh, learning the history of rumba and son and cha-cha-cha, which all flow into salsa. Um, also thinking critically and being more discerning about randomly using movement. Um, not over-sexualizing characters, not making a mockery of traditions, um, and recognizing that, especially for the Odisha, this is a, a modern belief system. This isn't just entertainment. This is, this is a religion. This is still a continuing religion. Um, I think it's also important to support Afro-Cuban teachers and artists, especially Black Afro-Cuban teachers, because they're often passed over for opportunities. Uh, pushing those teachers into the spotlight when they have decades of experience and not just in movement, but in the lifestyle of being part of this, this culture and this religion um, instead of trying to take a class so that you can take your minimal education and take those spots as teachers. I think that's really important. A lot of people I see take two or three years of class and then start to, to teach and go on the circuit as teachers when there are people who have 30 years of experience that I would consider masters in the form um, that I would, I would prefer to push them into the, the forefront. It's no secret that the social justice movements of 2020 made an impression in many of our lives. The movement became the heartbeat of this podcast. We wanted to know how Serena, James, and Peiwei thought about the practice of anti-racism in our dance spaces. What can people do in our dance community in response to the social justice movements that emerged in 2020? There's just so much um, that you could do, not only from... Um, going on the streets and going on the protest, but also really to dance well, to educate well, um, to not brag about your achievement and to not make this about yourself. So yeah, I, I, I really think that there are a lot of things that could be said and done, but for me, a personal conversation with an individual uh, who I feel that I can make an impact on is much more influential than me going on social media and just share a post. We may have a very small dance community here, but we do make a lot of impact um, with the people that we are around and these people go out and do other things. So definitely leading by example um, is the best way to go about it and definitely be patient. Um, I, I'm not an activist. Um, and, um, I, what I try to do is to be as open-minded as possible. The one thing that Payway said that for me stood out the most, uh, it's two things. One, it's action. And two, you, you want to have an impact on an individual's life, uh, opinion on something. You have a conversation. Uh, and to be honest, if your goal is to have an effective dialogue, then you need time, you need patience, you need understanding, and you have to be able to listen. I've discriminated in the past. 
And if somebody wants to have a conversation with me about that in the circumstances, then I will. Because I think when it comes to all, all the problems that we have, you need to understand the circumstances uh, in order to understand the individual. And it's, it's clear, to me at least, even though I'm not an activist, that uh, uh, Blacks, especially in this country, have been oppressed. I mean, there, I don't think, even if you're racist, I don't think you can negate that fact, right? However, maybe per people who are racist have a way of saying, well, that happened hundreds of years ago, so it's no big deal now. Okay, right? So I think in order to have a, a genuine conversation with that person, you're going to have to sit down and you're going to have to be willing to listen. How do you think about anti-racism as a dancer? And what should other dancers know about practicing anti-racism in their dance spaces? <sighs> I, I think there are a lot of layers to that question about how to practice anti-racism and the, uh, the different the intersections of privilege and racism uh, and sexism and colorism and uh, opportunity based on financial ability. Uh, just the, the privilege of being able to go to a festival that's outside of the country or being able to teach a workshop and not getting paid at a rate that's that's a living wage, um, being able to take opportunities from others because they can't afford to actually take those opportunities themselves. I think we have to think more about the financial structure of the scene uh, and whether or not we are really providing a space for the artists that we should be pushing um, and whether or not, even if we give lip service that we would love to have you come and teach at our festival, if you're not paying for flights, if you're not paying for hotels, if you're not covering the costs to make it beneficial for them to go, if they are a, a professional dancer, um, that you still may be excluding the people that you say you are trying to support. Um, so I, I think it, it comes from all angles of not just thinking, how can I, uh, how can I not allow my colorism to, to affect the way I choose people, but it's also financial and social and systemic, how we can build a path to raising the, the African community. Um, I see a lot of posts about like, we hire black dancers, but those dancers are very light. Um, and we have to recognize that even if they're black, we have to be pushing for more inclusion of very dark black dancers and having that conversation, even within the black community of I'm very light, I should really be giving this opportunity to someone else. This track is loaded. I almost don't know where to begin. What I love about working on this podcast in general is that I learned so much from every single one of our guests. For this episode specifically, I'm finding that working on Afro-Cuban movements, specifically the Orisha dances, 
when we're at practice feels like a more grounded experience now that I've heard so much from Marisol. She's such a resource. She really is. Marisol is a gift that keeps on giving, a walking library of Afro-Cuban folklore. As she says, she is Palo Yaya. And she's helping us so much with this month's family of rhythms. Her help includes text messages, expanding her interview answers at 3.30 a.m. <laughs> what a treasure. We want to give a big thank you to all of our guests, Marisol, Serena, James, and Pewe, for sharing their time, knowledge, and personal experiences. With their help, we build bridges from history, rhythm, and movement while keeping it 100 when it comes to building an anti-racist approach in our beloved social dance community. It is our hope that we can apply this knowledge to how we practice Afro-Cuban movement with cultural humility while we continue to center blackness. If you're interested in learning more, check out our website where we archive all our episode resources. Thank you for listening. This is Mixed. Mixed.